That was uh, great singing. I don't think we've sung that hymn before, but that really captured much of the message of Galatians. And so maybe we should just end right there after singing that hymn. I would encourage you in the days to come to to go back to 150 and read those words. Um, Shows us what the law does and what the promise does as well. As we turn to God's Word, and I invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. As we do that, let's also now go to the Lord in prayer, asking for His assistance. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we come before Your Word, we ask that You would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to know, hearts to embrace, and hands to work out Your truth. May your word that we will read and your word that we will consider strengthen us with patience and endurance to run the race that is set before us. And Father, while we are running, may we rest in the confidence that the good work begun in us will be carried on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Father, be pleased now to open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last Sunday and today, we're examining the relationship between the law and the promise. Now, this question has been asked since the first century, and here it is, the 21st century, and we're still asking it. What is the relationship of the Christian to the law of God? Well, given that the central and dominant theme of Galatians is is faith, is is justification by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, as we see three times in chapter 2, verse 16. The more specific question to ask is this, what is the function or purpose of the law when it comes to justification? Justification being, in the words of Westminster Shorter Catechism 33, an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Well, in Paul's proclamation of justification by faith, there are two major players, the promise and the law. Last week, when we looked at chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, we considered the priority of the promise, and we saw what the law cannot do. We saw that God's promises to Abraham were made, were kept unchanged, and were ultimately fulfilled in Christ, and thus to all those united to Christ by faith receive what was promised. Because the promise has priority over and precedes the law, the law cannot do away with the promise. Today, as we consider verses 19 through 24, we will see the purpose of, of the law. Instead of seeing what the law can't do, now we will see what the law can do and indeed does do. After that, we'll take a look at the rest of the chapter, verses 25 through 29, and the people of the promise. As you see how the chapter ends, we are the heirs according to promise. Well, even though baseball is over for the year and spring training is several 
months away. We're going to get started this week once again by heading out to the baseball field. Not Great American Ballpark, just a few miles away in downtown Cincinnati, but rather we're heading up to Wrigley Field in Chicago. Those of you that were here last week may remember there was a, an illustration that the church historian Mark Knoll um, told about the relationship between the law and promise uh, in a journal called the Reformed Journal in an article entitled Diamond Devotional. Here's what he said. For two glorious summers, the Chicago Cubs taught baseball fans the fundamentals of Reform Reformation theology. First, the Cubs made the trade for Vance Law and started him at third base. Then a few months later, marvelous to say, they brought first baseman Mark Grace up from the minor leagues. There they were, right next to each other in the batting order. Law and Grace. They were in the proper order, too. First Grace, batting in the fifth position, then Law. For as Paul explained to the Galatians, God gave grace to Abraham before he gave the law to Moses. And there they stood on the baseball diamond, grace and law, holding down opposite corners of the infield. Opposing batters would smash the ball to third, where law would knock it down and throw it over to grace at first for the out. Reformation theology in action. Law to grace. Well, here we see illustrated two truths that Paul is making known and making clear in Galatians 3. First, the promise of God has priority as it precedes the law of God, just as grace preceded law in the batting order. But also, secondly, the promise of God is served by the law of God, just as law sent the ball over to grace. Well, in today's text, Paul will show us the true and proper function of God's law in relation to his promise. Our approach to the text will be to ask and answer three questions of the text, two of which are directly stated and one which can be implied. Why then the law? Is the law contrary to the promises of God? And finally, what was life like under the law? Join with me as I read chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring could, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So the first question is this, why then the law? It's as if the false teachers, the Judaizers, those who were saying that, yes, faith in Christ, 
but it's not enough. Something else has to be added. They're asking this of Paul, and Paul's going to answer and provide the true function of God's law in relation to his promise. Again, the false teachers are, are not saying faith in Christ is not necessary, and we see this throughout Galatians. It's they're saying that faith in Christ is not enough. Okay, Paul, why the law? Now, Galatians 3 is not going to give us a full-orbed presentation of the Mosaic law in the Christian life. Rather, it's only going to describe the law in relationship to our justification. Paul's going to show the law's purpose in justification by showing its purpose in the history of redemption. And given the priority of the Abrahamic covenant, which bestows salvation on those who trust in God's promise, we saw that in verses 15 through 18, it is clear that the Lord never intended his law, which grants righteousness to those who keep its precepts flawlessly, to be used by sinners to, sh- to effect their own salvation. The law, we will see, reveals wrongdoing as a transgression of the divine will to show Israel To show God's people the depth of their sin and of their need for the righteousness of another. Martin Luther in his commentary in writing about how the law prepares a person for faith says this. The law prepares a person for faith as a mirror shows that he is a sinner, guilty of death and worthy of God's indignation and wrath. Verses 19 and 20 will show the true function of the law. It's there to demonstrate our need. Notice we heard that the law was added. It came, as it were, as an on-ramp to the gospel highway that was already there with the promise to Abraham. And it was added so as to define sin as a violation against God's explicitly stated will. Have any of you all been out hiking or just roaming through a neighborhood and you wanted to see what was over a fence or around the corner and you just kept walking? And things are going really well until when you take the route out back, you pass by the sign that you didn't see on the way in. And what did that sign say? No trespassing. It made you aware of what you had already done. And that's what Paul is saying here. And he says it in Romans as well. It was added to define sin, not as just doing something bad or wrong, but to show that sin was a violation, a transgression of God's divine will expressed in his law. Paul is saying here that the the law reveals and exposes sin. The law pulls back the curtain to disclose what man is really like. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under judgment of God and helpless to save himself. In addition, we know from the scriptures, we heard from Romans 7, that the law not only exposes sin, it makes us want to sin more and it condemns us. It exposes, it provokes, it condemns. Now, the second half of verse 19 and 20 are admittedly difficult to interpret. I found great comfort in 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter writes that some things that Paul writes is hard to understand. 
And here, I believe, we've come up on something that's a bit hard to understand. In fact, one commentary I was looking at said there were over 300 interpretations of this. Well, what I believe is going on is Paul is, again, trying to show the, the inferior, inferiority of the law to the promise. He, he's talking about it was a direct uh, expression from God to Abraham and yet to Moses. There were mediators. There were angels, as some scriptures indicate. And then there's Moses to the people. Um, there's this idea also that, that God is one and yet the Mosaic covenant kind of um, brought it out into uh, two kinds of people, Jew and Gentile, but it's going to be one people of God. And so you've got that um, in the background. So Paul asks and answers this general question, why then the law? Now he will go on to ask and answer another question. Is the law contrary or opposed to or against the promises of God? And this is a question that many believe Paul is asking, of course, rhetorically for the purpose of, of an argument, but he's also putting it in his own words to the false teachers. Now, before we go on, we need to have a few comments about God's law. We heard in Romans 7 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And Paul is talking about the moral law of God that is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And for those of you that have been in our Sunday school class, you may recall that uh, we've been talking about three uses, three purposes of the law. The first use, the law is a mirror. It provides conviction of sin. The second use, it's a muzzle. It's a restraint of sin. That is the civil use of the moral law. And then thirdly, there's the law as a map, a guide for the Christian. Here, Paul is dealing with this first use of the law, the law as a mirror, the law that will bring conviction of sin. Now, Paul asks the question, and immediately he answers, certainly not. He is trying to say that God does not change his mind. Verses 21 through 22 are going to show again the true function of the law necessary to declare God's solution. Is the law contrary to the promise? No, because for one thing, Paul says, the law cannot give life. He's echoing what he has said before. Remember last week we saw this distinction between the inheritance coming by the law or the inheritance coming by the promise. It's either or. Paul is showing that the law cannot give life because it cannot be fully obeyed. And so the law is going to drive the hearer to who or what can give life. So is the law contrary to the promises of God? No, because for another thing, the law drives us to faith in Christ. Look with me at verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Everything is imprisoned by sin. There is no way out. The only way out, the only way of escape, Paul is arguing, is Christ. It's by believing the promise. Are any of you all claustrophobic? 
Do any of you all get a little bit antsy when things are closed in? Paul is saying that, that sin is, is closing in. It has imprisoned the world. It has captured the inhabitants of the world. Paul, by meeting Jesus Christ, would see not that he just sinned here and there, but he had been a slave to sin and he needed to be set free. And we will see in Galatians this theme of freedom, faith into freedom come into view. For the Judaizers, they would say that the law annuls or at least supersedes the promise. But unlike the false teachers, Paul is saying that the law confirms the promise and makes it indispensable for salvation. So right here we can see that God has a purpose for the law. It's driving people to the promise. And let's look at this relationship between the law and the promise. It is one of cooperation and not competition. There's harmony. Because the inability to keep the moral law makes the promise all the more desirable, all the more indispensable. The law cannot bestow salvation, but the law most certainly can convince men of their need of it. In an old commentator, uh, an old commentary, the theologian Andrew Jukes says this, Satan would have us to prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave to prove us sinners. And interesting, isn't it? The law. Satan has one purpose. God has another purpose. Paul is wanting to show us the true function of the law and indeed the true beauty of the law. Again, Satan would have us to prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave to prove us sinners. It's ironic, isn't it? If righteousness could come by the law, then you've missed the main point of the law. Well, in our final two verses, Paul goes on to describe what life was like under the law. Or what does the law do? Let's read verses 23 and 24 again. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In a word, what was life like? People were in bondage under the law. And Paul is going to provide two illustrations, two metaphors to help his readers understand what the law does and how the law leads us to Christ as it helps us understand the function of the law. First of all, what was life like under the law? Because in a little bit, Paul's going to talk about what life is like being in Christ. But now, what was life like under the law? In prison. It was prison life. The law was the guard, was the warden. People were held captive, imprisoned. They were, they were protected, as it were, from escape by military guards. God's law, Paul is saying, holds us in prison. It keeps us confined. Law refuses to let us go. 
In a way, it protects us until it can hand us over to Christ. The law shuts us up in prison until Christ sets us free. Well, not only were we in prison, we were under supervision. The law was a supervisor. The law was a guardian. The law was a tutor. Those of you who like original languages, the word that's translated guardian was a pedagogue. And some of you know in the education world about pedagogy. Well, here, it's not so much a teacher or an educator, but a disciplinarian, often harsh. In the day and age of the first century and in Roman life, the people would know exactly what Paul is talking about. He's talking about someone who's a slave appointed to serve as a child's protector. Because families had a slave who was responsible to supervise the child from age six to the late teens on behalf of the parents. And this, this slave was not so much a personal tutor as he was there to point out the flaws and failures of the child. Because the law is expressing the will of God, what to do and what not to do. The law is rebuking and punishing us for our misdeeds, and that's what the guardian would do. The guardian does not pour out affection, but rather he chastises and rebukes. But notice, Paul is talking here about a time period before faith came, until Christ came. There was a time that the moral law served this function. And notice how this ends. The function, the purpose of the, and the goal of being in prison and under supervision is nothing less than in order that we might be justified by faith. Look again at the end of verse 24. In order that we might be justified by faith. You see, Paul said it three times in verse 16 of chapter 2, and he can't get away from it. Believe it or not, Paul is saying that the law is put there in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, even though Paul says the promise has priority, in these verses, he's been highlighting the law. Who leads someone to Christ and freedom? The law. Early this morning, before the sun came up, I heard the cries of a dog and he was telling me he wanted to go outside. I didn't let him just go outside on his own. I put a leash on him. And I led him outside. I led him to where he needed to go. And that's what the law is doing. It's a leash. Leading. In order to know and experience God's grace, his gracious promise, people have got to know God's law. The law searches and painfully analyzes our lives and our hearts. And unless we see how helpless and profoundly sinful we are, the message of salvation will not be exhilarating and liberating. John Stott, the late British pastor and theologian, says this. The law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. 
One of the great faults of the contemporary church is a tendency to soft pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness that the night of the night that the stars begin to appear, and it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Children, we've talked about it before. A diamond is displayed not against a white piece of paper. A diamond is displayed in front of black velvet. So you can see the beauty and the value of the diamond. As Stott mentioned, the night sky is black. And it has to be black for the stars to be brilliant. Thomas Watson centuries earlier in 1668 in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, says it very simply. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. The something to think about quote today is from uh, J. Gresham Machen. And in another work entitled, What is Faith? He says this. A new and more powerful proclamation of the law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. A low view of law always brings legalism into religion. A high view of law makes man a seeker after grace. Pray that the high view may prevail. Paul has a high view of law and its purpose in leading to the promise that faith in Jesus Christ brings. Well, let's end by making a few observations regarding, again, the relationship between the promise and the law. Two separate but complementary arrangements based on two principles. Now, think with me about the progression. There's a promise to Abraham. There's law to Moses and fulfillment in Christ. The promise is given to Abraham. It is confirmed in the giving of the law to Moses and it is all fulfilled in the offspring, that is, Jesus Christ. The promise, standing for the grace of God, was made to Abraham. It's what God will do. The promise says, I will. And what do we do with a promise? We believe it. And the law, standing for the works of men, was given to Moses. And what must we do? What must we do? We must obey it. Instead of God saying, I will, the law says, you shall. Let's end by going back to baseball. Because see, Paul is saying that God's law and God's promise, that is grace, are not opponents. They are teammates working together for the salvation of God's people. The law leads to grace. And grace is only found in Jesus Christ. Indeed, salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that you and I will inevitably break. Rather, salvation in Christ rests on a promise that God cannot break.
My friends, let's all find our rest in Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word that has been before us, and we pray that you would take the truth of your word and drive it deep into our hearts. Father, may we have a right understanding of the law and a right understanding of the promise. And Father, we see that coming together in Jesus Christ who obeyed perfectly in our place and on our behalf. And yet he also suffered the penalty for our, fa- for our failure. Father, may the law and the promise drive us to Christ. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to do whatever it takes to beat the truth of justification by faith in Christ alone into our hearts so that we could live lives pleasing to you and lives that do good to your people and others. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Law for what we could not do.